Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law. I'm Kimberly Atkins Store. This week, we'll be talking about Merrick Garland's abortion actions following the Texas law. We'll be debating cameras in the courtroom, and we'll look back on 9-11 and how it's impacted us personally. And as always, we look forward to answering some of your questions at the end of the show. But first, you know, it's been a rough couple of weeks, and I would love to hear from y'all about how you unwind about what you do to relieve the stress of the heaviness of the work that we do uh, day in and day out, especially over the last few weeks. What about you, Joyce? Well, you know, I tend to knit. um, And it's interesting that Barb was talking about patience a little bit uh, earlier. Knitting really gives me patience to deal with a lot of the turmoil that we live through. I can put up with almost anything as long as I have knitting in my hands. So if it's a difficult news cycle or if one of my kids is getting on my nerves, not that the little darlings would ever do that, um, I tend to knit my way through it. And it's really relaxing. What about you, Barb? Well, I uh, I like to exercise, you know, run or swim and do other kinds of things. I find that that is a great release and outlet, n- not just for my physical health, but far more importantly for my mental health. But I've also been, um, you know, during COVID times, doing a lot of binge watching of TV shows. So I guess that's my guilty pleasure. Uh, most recently, I've been watching uh, this show called Only Murders in the Building. I don't know if any of you have seen that with Steve Martin and no. Martin Short and Selena Gomez. It's great. It's like, uh, you know, kind of an old fashioned murder mystery uh, that they're trying to solve. They live in this cool uh, apartment building in New York City. Um, And uh, maybe one of the reasons I like it, they are recording a podcast about their efforts to solve this murder. So knowing uh, some of the stumbles that we've had in putting together our podcast, I kind of enjoy watching them uh, with their failed experiments, you know, recording in closets and things like that. So that's been uh, that's been a lot of fun. How about you, Jill? Well, I'm going to take your advice and watch Only Murders in the Building uh, because I do find that I can watch mindless, stupid television, just the worst things to totally take my mind off things. But I'm also very lucky because I have a very funny husband and he makes me laugh and he makes me relax. And so just spending time with him is one of my best ways um, or going for a walk with the dog. Although this week the dog saw a squirrel and dragged me behind the leash on the ground So it's, yeah, um, I I actually, my nose was really red as it was dragged on. Fortunately, I hit grass fast, but I still love him and I will still go for long walks with him. So that's what I do to relax. And what about you, Kim? Um, well, I will say this. I'm happy that my dog was only 30 pounds because that <laughs> prevented him from doing that. And I hope you're, I yeah. hope you're okay. Um, so my husband and I, we were a little late to the bandwagon on this, but we have recently been binging Ted Lasso. And I had heard a lot about it and how it's so optimistic. And I thought, oh, that sounds really boring. And we started binging it. And of course, we loved it. We've actually ab- absolutely been loving it. So we have caught up. Um, the season two is not as great as season one. I'm going to go ahead and say that. But that's one way that um, I have been unwinding. And um, my husband's very funny, too. I just want to say that for the record, since Jill bragged on My hers. husband's funny, so too. But yeah. Maybe We're that's the key to a successful funny. marriage, is having a funny husband. Maybe. I think I'm funny, too. Maybe. You guys are funny. You're all funny. We're all funny. But one of the unusual things that I have done on my own is that, so I have a fear, a bit of a fear of flying. I fly a lot, but it's never comfortable, particularly on takeoff and landing. 
Um, but one thing that I found that actually is stress relieving, although it doesn't sound like it, is that on YouTube, I found this old series called Mayday, which actually does a forensic um, evaluation. It takes you through the forensic evaluation of plane crashes to figure out what happened and why. But it also tells you how the industry changed in reaction to every one of these accidents to make flying safer. And I've actually found that not only is it relaxing to me, even though it's about plane crashes, because I really enjoy forensic science and forensic uh, reconstruction. And I particularly like it in a setting. This is a setting that doesn't involve a crime. So usually it doesn't involve, in some rare cases, if it's like a hijacking or something, it is a crime. But usually it's not, it's just an accident. Um, so it's a little less stressful um, in terms of, you know, the stuff that we talk about every day. But knowing how the industry responded to it actually makes flying easier for me. So anyway, I've, I've gotten hooked on them. I've literally been so binging So you are shows. watching um, videos, documentaries about plane crashes uh, to overcome correct, your fear of to relax. plane crashes. Yeah. Yes, and to relax. Yeah, actually, you know, that's Noom would call that exposure. You're exposing yeah. yourself to this thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. It's exposure therapy. So do y'all ever watch anything on HGTV since we're talking about sort of silly but relaxing TV? I'm getting ready to redo a a bathroom. We have a really old house, and we have one that's never been redone. And I confess I've gotten a little bit hooked on watching some of the HGTV home design shows. They're sort of fun. I haven't. I haven't yet, but I think as we were embarking on moving toward trying to buy a home, so I think that will increase dramatically once we really uh, get in the swing of I that. I want to suck you into my guilty pleasure. <laughs> I'll admit to watching some really low-rent kinds of things. When I was studying for the bar exam, and this goes back a long way, and needed to just sort of just totally get out of it, I watched Days of Our Lives, a soap opera. Oh, we used to watch that in law school. That's oh, great. Every single that day. So, Are you, oh, oh, yeah. Everybody's got a double. It's yeah. Fantastic. Oh, my God. I'm so glad <laughs> to know stuff. that I'm not the only one who did that horrible thing for a long time. And I actually got hooked on it. It's not now horrible. I try to oh, watch yeah. more of the late night humor shows to get me sort of laughing. Um, and then I sometimes will watch horrible Nazi movies because that also gets me really worked up about something that I don't have to do anything about, as opposed to voting rights or abortion or any of the other things that we have to deal with every day. So those are good escapes for me. Well, and there's always sports. It, yes. I, I almost always have some sporting event on in the background, either the radio or TV. I'll have the Tigers game on or uh, the U.S. Open tennis, the Olympics. I'll always have some kind of sporting event on in the background. I find it very soothing. <laughs> Roll right, Tide, Jill, baby, your, your Roll Nazi Tide. Your Nazi movies make me feel better. <laughs> Jill, your Nazi movies make me feel better about watching shows about plane crashes. It's not uh, so weird. And you'll never catch me watching sports. It is the one thing. I've never read the sports page ever. And I think some of you know I had a bad first marriage, but he did one good thing, my first husband. He would give me a sports line that I could share at the coffee breaks because I was the only woman in the office at coffee break time, conversation was always about sports and I knew nothing. So he would give me a line like, wasn't Kareem Jabbar great last night? And at least I could participate (laughs) in the conversation. So that was a good thing from husband number one. 
Okay, well, we should probably get get right to what has happened this week because it has been an eventful week. And I think the top line is Attorney General Merrick Garland's actions against the state of Texas for their abortion bill. Jill, why don't you lead us in that discussion? Well, let me start with a short introduction because last week we did talk about the Supreme Court's failure to stay the Texas Abortion Act, SB 8. It created a vigilante enforcement mechanism to prevent all abortions after six weeks, measured not from conception, but from a person's last period. It was a 5-4, unsigned, one-paragraph decision, and the four dissenters wrote powerful opinions in opposition to the majority's one paragraph, which said only that, and I'm going to quote, complex and novel antecedent procedural questions, close quote, prevented the court issuing a stay. More important for us today is that the court went on to say, and again I'm quoting, in reaching this conclusion, we stress that we do not purport to resolve definitively any jurisdictional or substantive claim in the applicant's lawsuit. In particular, this order is not based on any conclusion about the constitutionality of Texas's law and in no way limits other procedurally proper challenges to the Texas law, including in Texas state courts. This week, Attorney General Merrick Garland took the court's words literally and accepted their invitation for a procedurally proper challenge and filed a suit to protect the constitutional rights set forth in Roe and Casey that Texans who are or may become pregnant are being denied by SB 8. So let's take a look at what the Department of Justice's U.S. v. Texas case filed on Thursday does. And let me start with you, Joyce. First, let's remind our listeners what the procedural issues are that made the Supreme Court take no action and how the Department of Justice's lawsuit seeks to overcome those so that Texas and any other state that might want to follow in their lead cannot evade federal court review without which there is an ingenious and vicious cycle where you need to violate the law to challenge it and no one will perform an abortion in Texas after six weeks so you can't get it challenged. So people should be forgiven if they're trying to figure out exactly what's going on in this case because it's a little bit procedurally complex at this point. We now have two cases, this private lawsuit that was brought by abortion providers and advocates in Texas. That's the lawsuit that the Supreme Court took a look at last week. Now we have the new suit brought by DOJ, which is a separate case. And Jill, I think you're right to start by reminding folks that what the Supreme Court did last week in the Texas abortion case was not a decision about whether that law is constitutional. This was an emergency request that came to the Supreme Court that asked the court to issue an emergency ruling, what lawyers call a preliminary injunction, that would have blocked the law from going into effect. So the court's decision was to say, no, we're not going to block SB 8 from becoming the law in Texas. As you point out, they explicitly did not reach the merits of that decision. And, and, you know, it's pretty routine to grant a preliminary injunction in a case where a new law passed by a state violates a clearly established rights. The courts will prevent the law from going into effect to preserve the status quo because that litigation can take a long time. It can take a year or longer to decide whether a law like SBA is constitutional. 
And the courts tend to grant these injunctions to avoid violating people's rights in the meantime. A Florida court did that yesterday, for instance, where a statute in in Florida that uh, really interferes with people's rights to demonstrate and to protest was passed. And so the court issued a stay in that case to keep people's rights from being violated while the case is ongoing. But the Supreme Court didn't do that here. And it's important to remember that they made their decision without any kind of ruling or evidentiary findings by the ruler, by the lower courts. That's because the Fifth Circuit, uh, a court that I don't really have enough bad language to use against right now, the <laughs> Fifth Circuit strips the district judge who had scheduled a hearing of his ability to proceed. And, and they tell the district court, you can't take any evidence. You can't make a ruling on whether or not there should be a preliminary injunction against this law. They, in essence, just boot it straight on up to the Supreme Court. So what happens at this point is the Supreme Court in this one paragraph ruling that you've mentioned, Jill, they acknowledge that the plaintiffs have raised serious constitutional concerns, but then they blow right past them. They essentially say, you know, Texas outsmarted the entire legal system in our country. We've never seen such a thing before. Private enforcement, we're going to have to let them violate women's rights because they've done it in such a novel way. Enter DOJ. DOJ is not having any of that, right? So they've filed a lawsuit that's based on old case law. This this goes back to a case called Shelley versus Kramer, a 1948 Missouri case that goes to the real heart of this dodge the Supreme Court used, saying that they couldn't do anything because Texas had, had gone to a private enforcement mechanism using sort of vigilante citizens. In Shelley, uh, the situation involved the use of restrictive covenants that were designed to prevent black people and Mongolian people from buying houses in a neighborhood. And a black family purchased a house and a nearby resident sued to enforce the covenant. And the court held that that sort of private action couldn't be a vehicle for violating constitutional rights. So let me read you my favorite paragraph of DOJ's complaint. This is paragraph 84, and it says, Texas has deliberately impeded the ability of women and providers to raise a challenge in federal court for a violation of their constitutionally protected rights. In so doing, Texas has foreclosed the ability of these individuals to seek relief in their own name. The United States, therefore, brings this suit to vindicate its interest in ensuring that Texas respects its obligation under the Constitution— In other words, DOJ just brilliantly tosses the court's ridiculous decision back at it and says, okay, justices in the majority, you've held women don't have a remedy. Well, the law says in that case, DOJ can step in and here we are. And so that's the point that we're at today. That's a great summary of that. And Barb, can we go on to maybe summarize the relief that the Department of Justice is seeking and the legal basis for the challenges that they're um, going ahead, and maybe even assess how you think the arguments that DOJ made are likely, whether they're likely to prevail or not. Uh, is this the procedurally proper challenge that the court sort of said, we'll, we'll wait to decide this until there's a proper challenge? 
Yes. And, you know, hats off to the people at the Justice Department who came up with this theory. Um, You know, there are a lot of legal analysts who are scratching their heads about ways to get in front of court. You know, Lawrence Tribe, the Harvard law professor, was floating some different ideas about filing, uh, you know, actions under civil rights laws. Um, But they came up with this theory uh, that's been used in the immigration context. I think Joyce used it in the immigration context when she was U.S. attorney in Alabama. I'd love to hear more about her experience with it. But it's this idea that um, uh, under the supremacy clause of the Constitution, uh, the federal preemption, that is federal law can displace state law uh, in his primary, and the extra theory that's in this case that I think has not been used in the immigration context is this idea of of, uh, sovereign immunity, that um, you can't uh, put our government employees in uh, a bad situation. And so your laws in Texas are violating um, uh, our employees' uh, duties to do certain things. You know, For example, um, in Texas, there is a Department of Defense facility that provides reproductive uh, health services for employees. Um, in uh, the Bureau of Prisons, they provide reproductive health services, including uh, abortions for victims of rape and incest. Um, the uh, Office of uh, personnel man- management administers health care programs for federal employees in Texas, including reproductive uh, health benefits, um, Medicaid, the uh, Office of Refugee Resettlement, all these federal actors in Texas. And so I think one of the things that's brilliant about this is in addition to suing on behalf of the public, which the case law that Joyce has cited gives the Justice Department the ability to do in a way that no other party has, they have also asserted that it is the U.S. government itself that is suffering a harm here. And I think that is a way in which the Justice Department is uniquely situated to bring a claim like this. So I think it's brilliant. And um, I think it is uh, absolutely procedurally proper. The relief they are seeking is a declaratory judgment that SB8 is invalid, null and void. It can't be enforced. Um, a preliminary and then permanent injunction against the state of Texas from um, permitting enforcement of this. So this would be any judge in Texas cannot uh, entertain any lawsuit brought by a p- private party. Um, and Here's a nice touch. Um, oh, costs of litigation awarded to the United States government. Well done. Well played, sir. So I, uh, I'm really uh, tipping my cap today to the people at the Justice Department who came up with this theory. And I, I think it's just terrific. And I think it is likely to succeed. Although I think the supremacy clause argument is very strong. I think this thing about the intergovernmental immunity is very strong because the federal government will suffer a harm. And so I think they've got standing here. The preemption one strikes me as less strong. And Joyce, I'm interested in your thoughts about this. You know, when you brought this claim in Alabama and when Arizona brought it, preemption in the immigration space, you know, the federal government is uniquely charged with handling things like immigration and, you know, foreign trade and um, printing currency. There's certain things only the federal government does. And immigration is one of those. When it comes to abortion rights, that is something that tends to be more of a state law uh, regulation. And so I'm curious about your thoughts about um, about that particular one uh, and, and its strength in this context. It's a little bit trickier of an <clears throat> it's a little bit trickier of an issue in this case. I think you're right, Barb, because in Arizona, where there was um, an immigration law that was challenged, 
And then in Alabama, we had a separate challenge that's sort of unusual for DOJ, but the Alabama law was sort of like the Arizona law on steroids. And so we got permission for a separate challenge because the state of Alabama was burdening the rights of of kids with, with parents who didn't have status to go to school. And so the argument was preemption, but our argument was that Congress had spoken, that Congress had passed laws about Arizona and had made it clear that litigation, or or rather that policy about immigration was federal. You know, no foreign country would want to deal with a patchwork quilt of 50 states' different regulation, right? It made sense for the federal government to be the one that had say-so. It's a little bit different in uh, the Texas case because there is no federal legislation about abortion, at least not in that primary sense that there was with immigration. So the argument here is, well, the 14th Amendment and Roe and longstanding policy and all of the work that the federal government does establishes preemption. You know, if, um, as one might suspect is the case after last week, the Supreme Court has a different set of rules that they apply to abortion than they do to other constitutional rights, they might could distinguish the two situations and say that there's not preemption here. I don't think that's correct, but they could do it. But, Barb, that's why I think that you're um, right to point out that this intergovernmental um, immunity argument is a really strong and important one that I don't see how they get around. So before I turn to Kim, um, I want to just comment on why the government has a a particular interest. And for those of you who are wondering about the Hyde Amendment, or for those of you who even remember that there is a Hyde Amendment that forbids the federal government from spending money to support abortion, there is an exception, and that is for the life of the mother— and for rape and incest. And the Texas law, SB 8, goes so far as to have no such exceptions. And so in the case of a rape or incest, for example, on a military base, the Department of uh, Defense would provide an abortion for the rape victim. And this would be not allowed in the state of Texas. And so that's one of the ways in which the government has a direct harm. It's not allowed to, and and Barb mentioned all of the other departments that are also affected, uh, even the Department of Labor that has a training program where part of the training program gives the trainees health insurance that includes um, reproductive help. So, um, but let's let's move on. Um, And also I wanted to add to Barbara's praise of the Department of Justice for doing this. I just want everyone to know this didn't happen from the day the court denied the stay. It happened that they must have been working on this for a long time. A brief of this magnitude and thoughtfulness doesn't happen in a few days. It happens after weeks or months of preparation. So they've been preparing for defending this for a long time. Um, But Kim, let's, let's now look at as important as this is, um, and as much as I believe that ultimately the Supreme Court will rule SB 8 is unconstitutional, there will come a time when someone will violate it and will get an opinion. Um, Does it even matter? Or is the Mississippi case, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, um, which is going to be argued in October, the real end of Roe? It asks that, um, well, the question in that case presented is, 
are all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions unconstitutional. It prohibits any abortion after 15 weeks, which is still pre-viability. So, Kim, what do you think? Is that really the turning point? It could be. It could be. I wish I shared your uh, optimism that this law will be ruled unconstitutional by the court. I really do not. Um, But um, you are right. The Supreme Court had already granted, before any of this happened, before the law in Texas was even signed uh, into law, the Supreme Court had already granted certiorari in a case out of Mississippi. Uh, And in the Dobbs case, it involves a Mississippi law, which until the Texas law was one of the strictest uh, uh, anti-abortion laws in the country. And you were right. Among other things, it prohibits abortions after 15 weeks. It also has other um, provisions that imposes uh, onerous restrictions on people who can perform abortions. It can only, there are certain things only physicians can do and not physicians' assistants. There are certain standards that they have to meet, which most clinics can't meet. Um, And there's also a heartbeat provision in this, which says if a physician does an examination and finds a heartbeat, then the abortion will be prohibited. So it's not necessarily 15 weeks. It could be less. It's a very restrictive law. So a number of things can happen here, one of which would render consideration of the Texas law uh, moot, which is the court could decide in this Mississippi case to overrule Roe v. Wade. And in that case, then it won't matter. Uh, They won't have to even decide whether Roe v. Wade is the law in the Texas case. It will be gone. But something else that it could do, it can decide, well, okay, we're not technically overruling Roe, but what we're going to rule is that this Mississippi case, in our estimation, does not create an undue burden on women. Of course, Roe and its progeny, the cases that came after it, established an undue burden test. We talked about that last week in terms of rendering a law that... um, restricts abortion, whether or not it's unconstitutional. Remember that in the federal law, the federal so-called partial birth uh, abortion ban case, the court found that it did not violate Roe, that it was not unconstitutional because it was not an undue burden. Ruth Bader Ginsburg dissented strongly, saying that it was and that it was the first major rollback of Roe. Um, This even if the court held this, it would be a further chipping away of Roe in a very significant way. But given that the Texas law is more restrictive, the court would still have to consider that. It would say, all right, well, okay, you, you ruled that 18, uh, 15 weeks is not an undue burden. What about six? Um, so that is a possibility. So we don't know whether or not that's going to knock the Texas case off of its docket. Um, I just think that all of this is bad news, and particularly since the court gave, um, reading the tea leaves, that the court allowed the Texas case to, uh, the Texas law to take effect. Um, I I don't feel, I have a bad feeling about all of this when it comes to access to reproductive care. I just want to make one final point, just practically, right? Um, For people who, I am, I consider myself a very pro-life person. I I want there to be fewer abortions in the country. I have personally encouraged people who I know who are pregnant, who are considering abortion, not to. I even offered to help with childcare in one case. There should be fewer abortions in the country. There should be. Um, The way to get there 
is to make reproductive uh, rights and reproductive care and access broader. Actually, the number of abortions have gone down. So if these laws were really aimed at reducing the number of abortions, what it would do is it would increase access to birth control. It would increase access to family planning options because that has been proven to work. Bans of abortion have never reduced the number of abortions. They've just made them more dangerous. So make no mistake that these laws are about control. They're about controlling women's options, controlling women's bodies. And this is not about being pro-life. I just can't stress that enough. And I think that that gets lost in this debate so much. The, numbers of, the number of abortions have been going down in this country because of the work of groups like Planned Parenthood. Yeah. Hey, Kim, if it's I can push back on in that, the direction I'd like to push back on a little bit. Yeah. I do think there are people out there who have a genuine religious belief that um, abortion is murder and that life begins at conception. Yeah. But that's one faith. That is a Catholic belief. And I'm probably other religions believe that, too. I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, Joyce and Jill, but I think the Jewish faith says life begins at birth. Um, and different religions have different views on that. And there are people who are not religious. To impose one's religious beliefs on all of the rest of us because it is true and it is right is no different from what people fear when they say Sharia law will take over our country or what the Islamic State is trying to do. You know, ISIS's vision is that we will have an, an Islamic State where the law of Islam is what prevails and everybody else can get out of the way. Now, their tactics are, you know, sometimes to kill people who don't agree with them. But I think what extreme right-wing people are, or even people of good faith who believe that under their religious views that abor- abortion is murder, um, you, you don't have to have one. But um, you don't get to make that decision for the rest of us. Yeah, I think that's right. right. And, I, and I don't think that you that's... You are correct. Yeah. I was just going to say, I don't think that that's the brunt of the, the people who are passing yeah, these laws. I, I, I mean, I think there are multiple so people with multiple motivations. Yeah. Right. Well, and, to Kim's and, point, though, I'll say that I'll believe that folks who are passing um, anti-abortion laws uh, are not interested in controlling women's bodies and women's options when they also pass laws that provide for prenatal care for food support, for child care, for education. Because if you're really in favor of letting kids have good lives and, and live their lives, that support should not stop at birth. And that's, for instance, in states like mine, in, in Alabama, where in large measure, you know, women um, are forced to have babies and the state doesn't help them care for them if they're not able to. So I sense a certain amount of control in these bills rather than a legitimate religious belief, which I think you're right, Barb, it does exist in some places, but not in the legislatures that are passing these laws. So Barb, you're correct about um, Jewish believe the, um, that a child is at birth. When the first limb emerges from the birth canal, that is when it is a person and can be protected. Um, but I don't wanna end on a sort of a sad down note. Um, let's look at one more quick question. Could blue states use this vigilante tactic to enforce things that blue states might want to enforce, like gun laws? Could they turn things on its head? Um, and, and if you remember, Merrick Garland, in his press conference announcing the lawsuit, mentioned something about other uses of this And there is, I want to point out, Missouri has a Second Amendment sanctuary law um, that, again, enables citizens to enforce laws. And I'm just wondering if he meant that as another place they might 
use this challenge, but on the more positive side, could blue states use the same tactic to accomplish something they want to accomplish? I mean, my gut on this just says two wrongs don't make a right. Um, that state lawmakers cannot delegate their authorities out to private citizens in the terms of private rights of action. There's nothing ever, I think the four of us who went through law school saw anything that supported that. That is just not the way the law is supposed to work. Um, I don't always, I certainly rarely think that turnabout uh, makes for a fair play in these cases like this. I think lawmakers should be responsible for what they do. They should be accountable for what they do. They're elected officials. Um, they should be accountable to their constituents. And by sort of, you know, outsourcing it, it shouldn't be shouldn't be an option no matter what the outcome and is. And that's what Shelley, the case law that DOJ relies on, says here, right? Legislatures can't outsource their desire to violate people's constitutional rights to private citizens. That's not a world that any of us wants to live in. And I think these legislators in Texas have violated their oath to support and defend the Constitution. Uh, Yeah, but they've been doing that for a while, Barb. I mean, come on. (laughs) Fair enough. So maybe they should be the next (laughs) set of defendants. Um, And and the president does have a, a right to enforce the laws to take care that they are faithfully executed. And that was one of the grounds in the Department of Justice brief. So I think there's some really strong points that we've pointed out in the arguments being made to the court. And this may be a way to get around the otherwise ingenious, devious methods of Texas and other states to use vigilantes instead of their own enforcement powers. Hey, Kim, are you enjoying anything from Girlfriend Collective? You know, I really am. Just the other day, I went for a hike, and I was wearing my Girlfriend Collective leggings, which I love because they're so comfortable. They give you the support you need if you're doing something, uh, anything active. But I got home, and I started, you know, doing chores around the house and, and whatever, and hours later, I realized I still had them on. If I ever go hiking or walking or anything, I get home, the first thing I do is change, right? But the leggings were so comfortable, I just totally felt uh, so comfortable that they were like a second skin and it didn't even occur to me that I should change. They're so great. I love them a lot. What about you, Joe? Well, I agree with you completely and think that that is the joy of Girlfriend Collective is how comfortable they are. And now that the weather is unfortunately changing, um, I'm going to have to trade my skirt in for something a little longer so that I can continue to enjoy the comfort as we go forward. Um, and everything about it is really terrific. And I, I know, Barb, you've, you've loved it in the past. Are you still uh, using them? Are you going to wear anything today? Yeah, um, I, I may I may put on a skirt to play tennis later. But you know me, I'm all about the pockets. My favorite <laughs> aspect of Girlfriend Collective is that they understand the consumer like me who is obsessed with the pocket. Who would create a garment without a pocket? Not Girlfriend Collective. Lots of pockets, and that's one of the things I like best about them. Girlfriend Collective is sustainable and ethically made with inclusive sizing from extra, extra small to 6XL, incredible bras, leggings, shorts, skorts, tanks, tees, and swimsuits. The perfect choice for activewear. Whether you're working out, running errands, or doing nothing at all, I can't imagine any of us ever doing nothing at all, but it's possible. Girlfriend Collective has (laughs) functional fabrics 
colors and styles for any activity, and all their clothes and packaging are 100% recyclable. Their best-selling leggings come with pockets, and they have different levels of support so you can find the perfect fit. Uh, but I think my very favorite thing about Girlfriend Collective is their garment take-back program, Re-Girlfriend. When you change styles, you can return pieces for upcycling into new girlfriend gear. Join us in joining the collective today. For listeners of the show, Girlfriend Collective is offering first-time customers $25 off purchases of $100 or more when you go to girlfriend.com sisters. That's $25 off $100 or more when you go to girlfriend.com sisters. Again, girlfriend.com sisters, or look for the link in our show notes. Let's move from abortion to something that's much more in the wheelhouse of, of our legal nerdy sides. Let's talk a little bit about cameras in the courts. Um, you know, one of the fringe benefits of the pandemic, although it feels a little bit weird to think about fringe benefits of the pandemic, was the increased access to court proceedings. Because normally in federal court, you have to be there physically in order to see a hearing. Uh, you have to be far enough in the front of the line to actually get a seat. Sometimes for popular hearings or trials, you can't even get a seat in the courtroom. And at the Supreme Court, people will line up overnight and wait overnight to try to get in when an important case is being argued. That means that in some of the most important proceedings in our country, they happen cloaked in secrecy. Even though we technically, as a matter of law, have open courtrooms and judges are only authorized to close the courtrooms in very limited circumstances. All of that changed during the pandemic. There were a lot of proceedings in federal court that became publicly accessible on Zoom. I watched trials and hearings. I know y'all did too. And anyone in the public could. You didn't have to be a lawyer. You could literally click on the Zoom link and there you were in a trial. So I think that that was important. And, and what happened when, when George Floyd's murder was on trial in Minnesota, when Derek Chauvin, the police officer in Minneapolis, who was ultimately convicted of that murder, was on trial, everyone in the public was able to see the proceedings for themselves. And even the notoriously publicity-shy Supreme Court made real-time audio available for their hearings. But, you know, now we're going back to business as, as usual for whatever reason this fall. Um, and in the uh, Elizabeth Holmes trial, the Theranos case that we talked about last week, when that trial kicked up this week, people got in line very early in the morning to try to get a seat in the courtroom. But if you weren't there by 6 a.m., you didn't get a seat in the courtroom. The Supreme Court is going back to hearings in the Supreme Court building, but they've announced that they won't be publicly accessible, at least not to everyone, although there will be some audio. So let's start there with the Supreme Court, Kim. Talk about why the courts in general and the Supreme Court in particular are so very hostile to this notion of giving the public real-time access to their proceedings. And what's the Supreme Court doing here? Yeah, so the Supreme Court, um, you know, in very many ways, the Supreme Court is allowed to make its own rules in a way that even federal courts haven't. So federal court, courts in general had been hesitant about allowing audio uh, or video in their courtrooms. 
you've seen a gradual moving away from that. Some, particularly um, uh, at the at the trial level and uh, and some appellate levels, have allowed more access, uh, more remote access into the courtroom. Not the U.S. Supreme Court. I covered the Supreme Court for many years, and outside of the pandemic, not only is there no audio or video coverage of oral arguments or um, opinion announcements in that courtroom, you cannot take anything electronic into that courtroom. All you can take as a reporter is a notepad and a pen. Um, They won't even let you take, you're not even supposed to take an Apple watch in there, nothing that can tape or record anything. They're very old school. And uh, Justice Antonin Scalia years ago said in an interview on C-SPAN that a reason that that is important is because news organizations would take a little clip, you know, a 15-second uh, soundbite from the court and write all these things and extrapolate about the court in a way that isn't true. And, and certainly you cannot capture what happens at an oral argument in 15 minutes. But I think as we have moved forward, and certainly in the last 18 months, as the Supreme Court has allowed live streaming of audio, that hasn't happened. There hasn't been any grand, you know, mischaracterization about what has happened in the court. Um, I think that's an antiquated view. My sources in and around the Supreme Court said, you know, there might be a softening on that position. It's up to the justices, but it would have to be unanimous unanimously the justice would have to say, okay, you know what, we think that it is okay to broadcast audio or video from the courtroom. But until that happens, and I think so long as there are more senior members on this court who are still in that Scalia view of things, it will be a long time before you see any of that. One thing I do think is because as they're reopening and holding oral arguments again in the courtroom, but still streaming, that just knocks out an argument. I mean, I had people saying, oh, there's no technical way to stream from the courtroom itself. I mean, the only reason they were able to do that before is because they were doing it by a telecall. Well, now they're doing it. So clearly there's a technical way to do it. I'm sure if you ask C-SPAN, C-SPAN will find a way to put the cameras in there in a way that is not uh, disruptive and can do it. It's not a can't, it's that they don't want to. So we'll see if there is a slow movement. I'm very cautiously optimistic that the small step could mean more transparency in the court, which is important. As you said, only a handful of people who stand in line in Washington, D.C., or people like me who are reporters who can go in can see what happens in there. There should be more transparency. Yes. So, you know, I'm not buying we can't put cameras in the courtrooms, but we can put a man on the moon. So the technology (laughs) argument has never made much sense to me. And it's really I, I think it's pretty distressing that two branches of government operate with a lot of public attention. I mean, congressional hearings are on C-SPAN, but the courts have somehow managed to hold themselves above that. So, Barb, in contrast to the federal system, where there's really just very limited access, most of it in, in the courts of appeals, some of them have chosen to stream audio, um, but in the state system, there's a lot more access. All of the states offer some kind of access. So, how does that work? And, and do any of the arguments against having cameras in the court hold up in light of the experience the states have had with this? Yeah, I think it's such a great point, Joyce, because I think it really um, exposes the arguments in federal court as, as kind of not being, you know, is being sort of disingenuous, right? I mean, 
they have the technology to do it in the states. They most certainly have the technology to do it in federal courts as well. Uh, you know, if, I think our listeners are probably accustomed to seeing on the six o'clock news, you know, here's a scene about something that happened in court today. That's because our state courts typically do have cameras in the courtroom. And it does provide access uh, to the public to see what's going on and to be uh, informed about what kinds of cases are being tried. I think it's very good for the transparency of what prosecutors are up to, very good for transparency about the performance of judges. Um, and I, I think it's a, a very good public service. I think some of the things that have caused some reluctance is over the years, there have been some uh, cases where there was such extraordinary public attention that there was concern about the defendant's right to a fair trial. So the Sam Shepard case, you know, he was the doctor who was accused of killing his wife. That was the subject of the TV show, The Fugitive. That was a, a big one. The Lindbergh baby case was one that got a lot of attention. And this was, you know, in the era before cameras. And so that circus-like atmosphere that can impair a defendant's ability to receive a fair trial has been the focus of the part that I think is legitimate. O.J. Simpson, for example, some thought that the cameras in the courtroom there uh, you know, with Lance Ito and Marsha Clark and all of those folks, um, that that was perhaps a distraction uh, from the work at hand. So I think the defendant's right to a fair trial is a legitimate concern if it becomes a circus. I also think that jurors' rights to privacy are a fair concern. And so, you know, jurors don't ask to do this, but I think those things can be dealt with particularly with jurors. This, you know, I'm sure many of us watched the Derek Chauvin trial and you never saw the jury. Uh, you just can forbid cameras from showing jurors. I think that's one way to deal with that. You know, they would focus only on the witness or the judge or the lawyers as they were speaking. So I think there are ways to regulate without eliminating cameras in the courtroom. I do think that this issue with regard to a fair trial is one that needs to be thought through. I think the states have experimented with this in ways that seem satisfactory. But at the very least, if you are concerned about a defendant's right to a fair trial, um, then why not allow it at the appellate level? You know, at the Supreme Court, there's no defendant there. At the Court of Appeal, Appeals. Those are just legal arguments between judges and lawyers. And so I don't think this argument about the fairness of the defendant's right to a fair trial carries any weight at all when it comes to appellate courts. And so maybe you start there, start with the Supreme Court and then introduce the courts of appeals. And when the world doesn't, you know, end, then you can think <laughs> about maybe uh, adding the trial court level. Well, how about it, Jill? I mean, you've been a state solicitor general. Do you see any reason that appellate proceedings need to remain cloaked in secrecy? You know, Senators Grassley and Durbin have co-sponsored a, a Cameras in the Courtroom Act that would require the Supreme Court to televise their proceedings. Do you think it's a good law, a good idea? I think it's a great idea. I can answer any argument made for restricting cameras in the courtroom. There is no good reason. Not in today's technology. We have cameras that can be hidden so that no one is aware of them. We all are aware that we may be filmed by someone's telephone at any moment. And no one is distracted by it and no one is playing to the cameras. That was the other argument that was made was that people will ham it up for the cameras. And that just isn't true. Certainly not at the Supreme Court. If you've ever stood before the nine justices, you don't focus on anything except what you want to say and how you want to answer the questions. There is no one else in the room but those nine justices. And so I, I just don't see any legitimate reason. Um, you know, if you go back to the time 
And I, I'm the only one of us who would have remembered live the Shepherd trial. That was pre-trial publicity. It wasn't so much what happened in the Lindbergh case, as I've read about the, I'm not that old, um, so as I've read about the Lindbergh case, it was photographers were jumping up on tables to get better shots of people. Obviously, that's not good practice. That has to be controlled. But you can imagine behind the wall, there is an embedded camera one facing the jury box, I'm sorry, not the jury box, they would be excluded. One facing the judge and the witness, one facing the arguing lawyer, the questioning lawyer, and that, that would not even be seen by anyone in the courtroom. And the argument that it would mislead people or that misleading 15-second clips would be shown, well, right now you have misleading 15-minute quotes that a reporter in the courtroom wrote down and is repeating as part of the reporting. So absolutely, I think we need, this is maybe one of those issues where all of us agree, we need cameras in the courtroom. It would help to make people understand the legal system and to understand the outcomes of cases. I think I feel better about the Chauvin trial, for example, because I saw the witnesses and I could evaluate them for myself. I didn't have to take someone else's opinion. Um, so I think it's a, a good thing and that we need to definitely do it. And free press in this case has some rights as well as the right of fair trial. And the fair trial can be guaranteed by rules that prevent obscene kinds of displays in the courtroom. Well, that's four votes for passage uh, of the Durbin-Grassley Act right here with the sisters-in-law. You heard it here first. I have been using Headspace more and more as the news gets worse and worse and more alarming. I really need Headspace for relaxing, for de-stressing, for thinking about something other than the news. What about you, Kim? I feel the same way. It has been um, an intense few weeks, both with the news and um, as a result with my job. And it's really great to know that I can just take a few minutes or a longer period of time and just go to my phone and get a really great meditative session that allows me to recenter and really prioritize my mental health. What about you, Barb? Yeah, you know, um, there are a lot of different guided meditations on Headspace, as you know. There's a really good one about patients in traffic. And um, I, I've been listening to that one and I find it's been really useful for developing patients in other settings as well. It just gives you some things to think about. You know, when you're in a situation and you're in gridlock and you're, you're tearing your hair out, it really gives you um, some things to think about that, you know, we're all trying to get somewhere, we're all in the same boat, that I have found really helps me make peace with uh, the madness of traffic. So there are a lot of uh, things like that, you know, very specific uh, situations where you can use Headspace. How about you, Joyce? Are you using Headspace? I use it a lot at night. I sometimes have difficulty falling asleep or I'll wake up in the middle of the night. And so I've been using Headspace then. I like the guided meditations, but also the music. I think it all works out really well. Headspace makes it easy to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you. Anytime, anywhere, to give you a daily dose of guided meditation in an easy-to-use app. In just 10 minutes, it can change your life. Overwhelmed? Trouble falling asleep? Wild kids? 
Headspace has a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Their approach can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being, and is one of the only mindfulness apps validated by clinical research. Headspace's benefits are even backed by 25 published studies, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. You deserve to feel happier. And Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash sisters. Headspace.com slash sisters for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now, so head to headspace.com slash sisters or look for the link in our show notes. Well, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 is upon us, and I think everybody remembers where they were on 9-11. I know prior generations will say they remember where they were when they heard the news that John F. Kennedy had been assassinated. That was just a bit before my time, but I certainly remember where I was uh, on 9-11 when I heard the news about the planes striking uh, the World Trade Center. Um, I'm curious to hear about uh, each of your stories. Uh, Jill, you remember where you were when you heard the news about the 9-11 attacks? I even remember where I was when John Kennedy was shot. <laughs> I was too. under a hairdryer across the street from my sorority house in a beauty shop. Uh, but yes, Were you I, getting a big beehive? I was, I was. <laughs> we yes. need pictures. <laughs> oh, God, yes. Um, and I recommend the Memphis uh, restaurant called The Beauty Shop, which is actually a converted beauty shop with hair dryers in it. So you can see what a hair dryer looked like. Um, and yes, I also remember where I was on September 11th. Um, I was speaking to the Rotary Club of Evanston about a new startup not-for-profit called Winning Workplaces and how they could help employers be better employers and therefore have uh, more profitable outcomes. And when I finished and I was with the person who had started this not-for-profit, Ken Lehman, the president of the Rotary Club took the stand and said, we want to thank you for being here, but now I have to make an announcement. And he announced that the first plane had crashed into the World Trade Center. And everyone in the room, you, it, it was electric and terrifying. And of course, everyone left. My office was walking distance, and on the way back, Ken and I decided that we should go somewhere to get a TV, and I called my husband and told him the news, and he met me at Ken's home, and we watched the news in total disbelief and despair at what was going on. Um, not long after that, I had to fly to New York on business and went down to see the ashes, basically, of the World Trade Center, and, and when I say ashes, it, it was ash-covered blocks around the, the Trade Center. And you saw the pictures of victims that had been posted on standing buildings around there. And again, it was terrifying. More recently, I was there to see the new World Trade Center and the memorial. And it is really 
a dramatic reminder of the loss of that day um, and what, at that time, foreign terrorists did to us. And now we have to look at, is the biggest threat to America still foreign terrorists or is it the right-wing domestic terrorists? And I'm going to vote for it is the domestic terrorists that are the big challenge to us now. And that's why we've been talking about all these other issues, uh, including the uh, SB8 and voting rights mm-hmm. and some of the other things that have, have happened in America. So that's how it impacted me long term is my commitment to continuing to fight for freedom for, against domestic and foreign terrorists. How about you, Kim? Do you remember, remember where you were yeah. on 9-11? Or you're too oh, young no. to remember? Come on, I was, a wor- I was working. I was already <laughs> on my second career. Um, I had actually just started as a reporter at the Boston Globe. The first job I had when I, mm. after um, switching from the law to journalism, it was my second week on the job. And I was getting ready to leave for work. And I was watching, my TV was on the Today Show. And I saw that the first plane had hit the World Trade Center. And my boyfriend at the time was living in New York. And I called him. He, I think he was en route to his work um, in Midtown Manhattan. And I just called him to say, Have you, did you see this? Like a plane flew into the World Trade. That's crazy. And as I was leaving this message on his ma- machine, I saw on live TV when the second plane hit. And immediately understood that this was not an accident, that this was an attack. Mm-hmm. After that, the phones went dead. You couldn't reach anybody in uh, Manhattan. It was hours before I could reach him to, to make sure that he was safe. But I was a reporter in Boston working at the Globe. Where, and remember, two of the planes that um, were used that day came yeah. from Boston Logan Airport. And immediately, all of us began working, covering this story. And one of the most difficult things I had to do in my journalistic career was go to the homes of people whose loved Oof. ones were on that plane. And sometimes, especially in the early days, it was hard. They didn't want to talk. Um, some of them were angry that reporters were coming to them in a way that I could understand. Um, and, but it was one person who was a relative of one of the flight attendants on the uh, planes who I knocked on his door and he very politely um, declined to talk to me, even though I said, you know, just a photograph, just something that we can um, let the world know that your loved one was a real person and not just a name or a number. And he just very politely declined. And I could only imagine the pain he was going through. And I got back in my car. I was in tears. And I called my mother and I was telling her, I'm gonna, I made a terrible mistake in making this career change. Um, I feel like a bottom feeder. I feel awful. That I'm, I feel like I'm preying on these people at the worst time, not just in their lives, but in a, a worst time, one of the worst times in our country. And she talked me off the ledge. Now, keep in mind, my mom was not happy that I stopped practicing law to become a journalist. But she <laughs> talked me off the ledge and said, no, the work that you're doing is important. And sometimes people will want to talk to you and you will help them. And you are doing the right thing in giving stories and giving, letting the people, letting America know who these people were. But if there's somebody who doesn't want to talk, you just move on to the next. And it's okay. What You're doing good work. She kept me from quitting that day. Well, that's good um, And so I, that was a, a great lesson in my career that I've taken throughout. We're all lucky to have mothers and sisters. Um, Joyce, how about you? You know, I spent a big part of the morning of 
9-11 calling car rental agencies because my mother-in-law, who I loved and was very close to, was in Manhattan for a dog show that day. And so, well, I hope my sister-in-law is not listening to this episode. Lisa, if you are, I'm sorry. Well, my sister-in-law was very slowly taking a shower and getting her stuff together after I had told mom that I would find a car and that they needed to get out. Um, I finally found, I think it must have been like the last car that was available. They had to get into a cab and go about an hour and a half south into New Jersey. And they picked up a car there and, and drove home. So that had sort of given me something to focus on. My family is from New York. My granddad was one of six. My grandmother was uh, one of five. And, and most of my cousins and um, aunts and uncles, great aunts and uncles, remain in New York City. So it, it felt very personal to me. Even though I was in Birmingham, Alabama, I was actually driving into work when the first plane hit. My husband called and I asked him, you know, what's the weather like? Are you watching it on TV? And he thought it was a small plane. Yeah. Do you remember that was the first People story that it was a small plane in the beginning? Hit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but Bob said, no, the, the skies are clear. It's sunny. And I instantly just, you know, had that bad feeling that so many of us had. I got to work. I was a federal prosecutor, a line prosecutor, and I got to work in time to watch the second plane hit on live television with all of my colleagues at work. We were normally a very busy, bustling office, but we lived in and out of each other's offices. We didn't tend to shut doors and stay isolated. We were always consulting and working with each other. And I remember that that morning, the office was quiet. We just all sat in, in one of the biggest rooms that we could find. Somebody managed to rig a TV in there. Um, and we watched sort of in shock and, and in horror because we knew that the world was going to be different after that. I think you knew that almost immediately. People early on suspected terrorism even before that was con confirmed. And, and at lunch, my husband and I did something that we had never, ever done before. We our, our kids went to school, went to an Episcopalian school in downtown Birmingham. We only had three kids. And we got together, and, and Bob and I walked over there and picked up our two boys and took them home and talked to them about what had happened. And our daughter was just getting ready to turn three. She was at home um, with her, her uh, babysitter. And here's what I remember about 9-11 to this day. This is what really got to me. Ellie sat on my lap. You know, she was so cute. She was three years old. And she had tears just sort of sitting on, on her little cheeks, and she kept watching for the next couple of days the video, and she would point at the monitor, and she would say, my people, my buildings, like she was trying to understand it. And what that always drove home to me was that no matter where you were in the country, whether you were in New York, whether you had a loved one who died that day, it was a very personal experience for all of us, and I hope we'll never forget what that felt like to be under attack, but also to come together as a country. That's what's so important, that we remember, and that we remember in this tough time that we're living in how to come together as a country. Yeah, that uh, that reminds me a lot of my day, Joyce. I was home on maternity leave with um, mm. my third-born son, who— you know, you can mark his age with 9-11, who's now 20. Um, and uh, I, my morning ritual was to watch the Today Show. So I was up with him, and I turned on the Today Show, and they were talking about a plane crash, you know, what they thought was a private plane, small private plane into the side of the World Trade Center. So I'm kind of half watching, half tending to him, and then the second plane hit while we were, while we were watching. Um, 
I called my husband and uh, he said, I'm already on my way. He was going to pick up our older two boys from daycare uh, to get them home. And he knew I, I was calling. I think because I was home on maternity leave, I was riveted to the television. I watched a lot of the coverage, probably too much, frankly. Um, and I think as a result of that, I kind of overdosed on some of those emotional stories. I know there's been a lot of retrospectives in the news lately, and I find myself kind of turning away from them because it's so painful to read those stories. You know, there's that movie, I think it's called Flight 93, that came out like five years after 9-11 in 2006. I, st- I-, I want to see it, but I still yeah, have yeah, not seen it because I think I will see that someday, it but it's too soon. 20 years later, and it's still too soon. Um but uh, I, I was also a federal prosecutor, Joyce, home on attorney leave. But when I got back to the office, after that leave, the office was forming a counterterrorism unit. And I said, I, I would like to do that. And I applied for that unit because I just wanted to do something to help. I think so many of us felt helpless and wanted to do something. And so from that moment forward, I was a national security prosecutor. And I found that work very important and very satisfying. And I now teach a course in national security and civil liberties, where we talk about the importance of both of those things. Um, And I find my students now, law students, are too young to remember 9-11 because it was 20 years ago. Most of them are in their 20s. And so um, one of the things I show them in that class, one of the first days of class, is a a brief clip that I have put together from the Today Show of that day. Because I want them to feel, to the extent as possible, what we felt that day. Uh, Because I think it explains some of the reaction and maybe even overreaction that came in the law with the Patriot Act and some other things. I want them to feel that sense of terror as it unfolded. Um, And so I show them this clip that shows the planes and the Pentagon and all of those other things. But it's so eerie when you watch it because the way it begins is Matt Lauer's voice. They start with a clip of Michael Jordan. And it says, you know, the lead story is, will Michael Jordan come out of retirement and play again in the NBA? Uh, We'll learn more today. Tuesday, September 11, 2001. And then, you know, the theme song begins and it's a crystal clear day and you see the skyline of New York and you think, oh, good God, I know what's about to happen, uh, you know, in just a very short period of time. And then, you know, we show the other clips. So it's, um, it was a monumental day. I remember it well. And, and like all of you, I, I, I think about where we've come and it did feel like that day we came together. But then you see what happened on January 6th, Jill, as you point out. And why doesn't that uh, hit all of us the same way? It hits me like that. What, what an awful day for democracy. And in fact, in some ways, it's worse, right? Because it came from within. This wasn't, uh, you know, a, a foreign adversary, uh, someone who's hostile to us, but these were our fellow Americans. And they didn't just kill people. They were undermining our democracy. And I think we should kind of feel the same way about January 6th as we do about September 11th. And I wish that we could unite around that instead of having, you know, government officials denying that it happened. Um, well, we'll have to leave it there. Yeah. I, I just was going to say, I, I agree with you and think that it's similar to the difference between when I say that Donald Trump's uh, impeachment was more important than Richard Nixon's because Richard Nixon didn't involve a foreign country and Donald mm-hmm. Trump did. And, um, I'm glad you mentioned the Pentagon because I did lose one of my former employees from the Pentagon on that day and almost lost a very dear friend who was late to work and wasn't inside the building when the Mm -hmm. plane hit that building. So many stories like that, random strokes of luck. Well, we'll have to leave it there. But, you know, I I don't want to end on a down note. It's a very down story, of course. But 
I think that, you know, it motivated me to want to do something to help. I think it, you know, all of you had stories about how, what you wanted to do and, and find a positive lining out of that. And I hope that um, that reminder is uh, an inspiration for how we can come together as a country and go forward uh, and, uh, you know, and, and do better and be better uh, as a result of these attacks to come together and unite and not be divided. So y'all, what have you been eating for breakfast lately? What about you, Kim? I have been eating uh, some Greek yogurt topped with magic spoon. Lately, I've been on a peanut butter kick. Um, That's a really good combination in the morning. What about you, Jill? I actually have a new flavor, which I'm hoping they'll make permanent. It was a special flavor called Jelly Donut. And they make really a good breakfast cereal but also a terrific snack. And, but you mentioned peanut butter, and that is my husband's favorite. He is a peanut butter addict. He eats peanut butter every morning for breakfast, the real creamy, actually the real chunky stuff. But now he's using the protein from Magic Spoon in its uh, peanut butter flavor. So that's really good. And what about you, Barb? Well, you know me, I like to eat cereal as my late night go-to dinner option. And so I find Magic Spoon to be just kind of the perfect dinner. If, you know, I'm home late, I've missed dinner, it's nine o'clock or so, I want to eat something, but I don't want to eat something too heavy. I find Magic Spoon to be uh, just the perfect little light dinner. And I know I'm getting uh, good nutrients in, in a tasty form. How about you, Joyce? Are you enjoying Magic Spoon? It's a big family favorite in our house. And, you know, it's like a wonderful thing when you can find something new that you love um, this direction. It really has become a big favorite around here. Kim, I've been using your granola approach, by the way. Thank you for that, because it's really good. Ma- it's it good. is good. Magic Spoon has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, four net grams of carbs, and only 140 calories a serving. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. It's almost too good to believe, but you can build your own box and customize it with Magic Spoon's delicious cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, or cinnamon flavors. Is that all, Jill? Actually, it's not. Magic Spoon (laughs) is bringing back two fan-favorite flavors, cookies and cream and maple waffle, permanently. They're delicious, indulgent, and healthy. Go to magicspoon.com slash sister to grab a custom bundle of cereal and try it today. Be sure to use our promo code sister at checkout to save $5 off your order. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product. It's backed by a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash sister and use the code sister to save $5 off. Thank you to Magic Spoon for sponsoring this episode. (music) 
As always, we've received some great listener questions this week. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlawatpoliticon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on your Twitter feeds throughout the week. We'll answer as many questions as we can there. So uh, this week we have a question from Mac in Silicon Valley, California, who asks, is it true Congress can make Roe v. Wade the law of the land once and for all without further legislation? Please include answering if it has to go to the Senate. I hope not. What say you, Joyce? Well, unfortunately, that hope is in vain. There actually is a bill that's been introduced in the House by California Congresswoman uh, Judy Chu, and that bill would make Roe versus Wade the law. So there would actually have to be a new law, this bill, that would pass the House. But then it would have to go to the Senate for passage, where that might be a little bit more uh, difficult of a proposition. And finally, if a law did pass Congress, it would be subject to review in the court. So ultimately, this all ends up with the Supreme Court deciding whether a law that, that made Roe the law would be constitutional. All right. Well, thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joe Winebanks, Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, and me, Kimberly Atkins-Store. Don't forget to send in your questions by email to sistersinlawatpoliticon.com or tweet them using uh, for next week's show using hashtag Sisters in Law. This week's sponsors are Girlfriend Collective, Headspace, and Magic Spoon. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they are the reason why we can make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and give us a five-star review. We love to read your comments. See you next week with another episode, hashtag Sisters in Law. So Barb, you're not going to be with us next week. Where are you going to be? I am going to be a chaperone on a busload of high school girls uh, who play field hockey headed toward your neck of the woods, Jill, Chicago, for a weekend road trip. Woohoo! I think it's going to be uh, lots <laughs> of fun. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> what could go wrong? Yeah. No, it should be a lot of fun. And, um, you know, this is uh, my fourth child, so uh, soon to be an empty nester. So I am to, uh, I'm sure, to, to much eye rolling from my daughter, uh, making sure to attend everything I can, because I'll soon be an empty nester. And I'm going to miss it. You know, she'll move on to better things. But uh, what am I going to do for a social life once I can't go to my, my kids' sporting events and band concerts anymore? So I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be a lot of fun. I can vouch as a spouse of an empty nester. It's going to be hard for you. It's going to be harder than you realize. <laughs> There's a lot of moping. So y'all's houses are different than ours. You know, we just dropped our fourth kid off at college. He's now a buff at uh, Colorado University at Boulder. And Bob and I have been out celebrating. <laughs> Does that mean we're bad parents? No, no, I think it just means you have, you're the parents of four. And the, the fourth <laughs> one's the charm. When I left the house to go to school, I'm the youngest of six. Um, we pulled out, my dad was driving the U-Haul. And I forgot something and I went back in the house and my mom was already ripping up the carpet in my bedroom to turn it into <laughs> her den. Cheerfully, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, she was she was just real broken up. The girl's like yeah. still talking the phone or something. The parents like measuring. Exactly. Yeah, that's so funny. I was totally yeah, the My first child goes to college. I take him up there. I'm like really traumatized. I come back home. And the one thing you tell your kids, right, is clean your room before you leave. And he had not. His last year was at boarding school. So he had brought everything home and just left it there for me. 
and I'm going through his boxes, and he's such a freaking slob that he had literally into these boxes put like a plate with food on it. His trash can, his entire freaking trash can is in a box with the trash still in it. And I was like, I'm so glad that kid is gone. Yeah, that helps ease the pain of their loss, right? It really did.